and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Steve Kaminsky, Strategic Initiatives and Special Projects at Jump Crypto. Steve, it's great to have you on. Yeah, Josh, thanks for having me. I'm looking, uh, looking forward to the discussion. So you had, uh, you know, worked in a lot of jobs uh, in traditional capital markets before crypto. So I'd love to kind of hear a bit about your background and, you know, how you eventually got drawn into the crypto space. Yeah, for sure. Um, so my career started in traditional finance. I worked, uh, I worked at Goldman Sachs and then RBC, um, always within kind of the fixed income space. I started on the futures desk and then moved into traditional fixed income, kind of focused on electronic trading, which is kind of what naturally led to my progression and introduction into Jump and the uh, trading ecosystem. So when I was at you know Goldman and RBC, what we were mostly focused on was kind of, the, it was a more market structure and business development type role and kind of improving the electronification of the markets, um, whether it be in treasuries or effects. And you know because of my role there and kind of understanding the capacity with which Jump trading operates in traditional fixed income markets. Um, that was kind of a natural transition and introduction for me. And so what, I guess you kind of, you know, kind of brought it up, what, what drew you to jump, which was just the transition and, you know, their, 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 I guess, uh, positioning within the fixed income space. But yeah. how did you move from jump to jump crypto? When did that happen? You know, how long have you been involved with jump crypto? And, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about Jump and 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 the firm story? Because it is a trading firm, but in crypto, it is so much more. And we see the news. You know, Jump working on Pith, which we're going to get into, yep. and contributing and working on on Wormhole and a number of other things in the space. Yeah, absolutely. So Jump Trading um, has is one of the leading quantitative research firms and kind of high frequency trading institutions. Jump trading has been around for over two decades. So a really large kind of trading firm within the space. The story behind Jump Crypto actually started in 2013, 2014. We actually, it's, a, it's quite an interesting story. A group of interns were basically tasked with kind of exploring this new asset class called crypto, trade that asset class, see how it goes. You know, and what was really interesting to see was what was a really interesting or, or I'd say easy trade, but challenge operational uh, has kind of shifted a bit now into a much more you know, difficult trading environment, but the operations side of it has obviously improved quite a bit. So I started, uh, when I joined Jump, I was on the traditional side of the house. I was actually focused um, within our business development team, but on a bilateral trading efforts that we were doing, we called it Jump Liquidity. So this was essentially taking some of the, the trading flow that Jump had in fixed income markets and trading directly with counterparties. Um, so I was at Jump for about two years. And as, this, you know, as I was working on this space, the crypto team, um, so as crypto started around 2013-14, I joined the firm in 2018. You know, crypto markets have seen quite a bit of you know, cyclical activity um, through that short time frame. But after two years of working <clears throat> on the traditional side of, of Jump, um, I was asked to move into the crypto side to help with some of the business um, strategic initiatives that we were working on at the time, which, which I'm sure we'll get into as well. And, and yeah, Josh, to get into kind of like 
jump crypto more broadly. So we, we talked about how jump crypto started as a trading firm, which was a really natural kind of evolution for us, given, you know, crypto being an asset class, just like many of the other asset classes that we actively trade. As we became bigger and a bit more sophisticated within the crypto space, a natural evolution for us was then to begin to really deploy capital and invest and partner within the crypto ecosystem. And so, you know, have you done that in more traditional asset classes before? Or was crypto really your first foray into crypto? Was crypto was more unique in that regard? Jump has always had Jump Capital, which is a separate venture entity. And interestingly, a lot of the Jump Capital team that was focused primarily on fintech. A lot of them have since moved into the jump crypto investment side, given kind of jump, the overlap there. Jump itself is all proprietary, but jump capital has external LPs. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, okay. that's right. Separate entity. Jump trading is a proprietary trading firm with its own capital. Um, and yeah, so so back to jump crypto. Yep. And also just to just a level set here, like jump trading is about twelve hundred people now. So so quite a big global trading firm with presence across every asset class, every exchange globally, um, headquartered in Chicago, but offices all around the world. You know, I'm based in New York, we have offices in Singapore and London and many other places as well. Jump Crypto, so in addition to kind of the, the trading side, um, Jump Crypto is also active on the investment side, as we alluded to. So kind of deploying capital into projects and ecosystems that we're partnering with, that were either you know, started from the trading side or otherwise. And then as that scaled and that kind of evolved, we've also built out this new group and all these groups kind of work closely together, but our strategic initiatives arm. And you know that's kind of where I sit. We call it special projects sometimes. But essentially this is, if there are problems in the ecosystem that we don't feel there is an easy solution to just deploy capital to, is, are there ways in which we can actually build? And so Jump Crypto is about 220 people now. So quite a big team many engineers and traders and developers, and also a lot of quant research on the blockchain side. So we're putting out a lot of interesting research on the space, as well as developing and building within the crypto ecosystem. And that's really kind of where Pith comes in, which I know we'll get into a bit more. Yeah. And so, and so why don't we go right into, into, into Pith, right? So how, you know, what is kind of the story on Pith? Um, you know, you obviously mentioned that Jump you know, seeks to to solve issues that don't have solutions yet in the market where you can deploy capital. So there were already oracles in the space, obviously Chainlink being the most well-known oracle and and and, and a, a number of other oracles as well, right? Across a number of different chains. But why Pith? Why did Jump decide to be part of the the, the genesis and the birth of, of Pith? And how did you get involved with it? Yeah, great question. So Pith, to your point, is it's an Oracle solution. And the, the challenge that we faced is Jump Crypto and Jump Overall really has this fundamental belief as we've kind of dove headfirst into this space, into the growth of DeFi, right? We come from a financial background and quant background. And so institutionalized DeFi, high fidelity, high frequency type projects being built on chain are only going to be successful if they have access to high fidelity, highly reliable and robust data sets. That we did not see in the ecosystem. So when we think about like what Jump needs to be a successful trading firm, again, we're very early with respect to like how this will evolve from TradFi to DeFi, of course, but 
when we were looking at you know what jump our expectations at jump trading from a data perspective are quite high and so i think that's what led us to to look at the oracle landscape and say i don't think there is an existing oracle solution today that is able to support the type of growth scalability and institutionalization that we hope to see want to see and and think will will occur and so you know the pith network um, was something that we were immediately attracted to towards helping you know deploy resources to support and and kind of help grow that ecosystem and we've been really excited about it so actually let's take a step back a, a lot of our listeners are are folks that are from traditional you know, markets that are now interested in or considering participating in crypto. So yep. what is an Oracle and what's the problem that it's solving? So I realize we kind of fast forward. Yeah, we skipped over that. that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Good. No, that, that's well said. <laughs> Always good to define the problem, right? The Oracle problem essentially asks, you know, how do you bridge the gap between all of the exciting projects and protocols that are being built on chain with data and information that exists off chain? So for how you know sophisticated, complex, exciting blockchains can be and layer one ecosystems, they're closed loop, right? They do not have access to the outside world. And so oracles help to serve kind of that bridging mechanism to bring in that data on chain. Easily illustrated with an example, and we can keep it super simple. Josh, you and I were talking about the Knicks before. Say that we were to, you know, write up a smart contract stipulating that if the Knicks win on Wednesday, you'll pay me $100. If they lose, I'll pay you $100. Super easy contract. We could sync up our wallets, deploy it on chain. Come Wednesday night, once the game is over, that contract needs to pull in data from somewhere. Now, this is pretty easy, right? It's a binary outcome. The answer is either yes or no. And you know whether we go to ESPN or... you know. Uh, Yes Network or whatever, or MSG, they're all going to have the same outcome, right? It's not like a disagreeable challenge. Take a little bit more of a relevant, sophisticated example. Let's say I own some Bitcoin. I want to deposit that on chain to some protocol where I can earn yield. This protocol says if the price of Bitcoin drops below a certain threshold, call me for margin. Really quickly, you could see two reasons why this is a bit more complex. You know, one, the price of Bitcoin or any asset or especially crypto asset is moving in a real time, super volatile way. And more interestingly, anybody you ask is going to give you a slightly different answer at any given moment of time. So those are just kind of two examples to show how oracles are used. You know, something like as an easy summarization of this, smart contracts require smart data, right? And you can kind of elaborate on that, like high fidelity, high frequency smart contracts require high fidelity, high frequency data. But that's really kind of what the Oracle problem is. And so for the listeners, it's really best thought of as like a core piece of infrastructure for all things crypto, Web3, DeFi. So a lot of, you you alluded to a lot of my next questions, which is great. The first yeah. thing is the price of Bitcoin is slightly different, you know, no matter who you ask. And so how do you ensure quality control on data providers when trying to come up with a a a, a quality price uh, to provide via the Oracle? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me also just step back to kind of get into a bit more of the mechanics of how PIF work, because I think that'll help yep. answer that question. So the PIF price, the price that's actually being used by these on-chain protocols is an aggregate. 
right? So PIF today has 75 data providers. Let's say 50 of these data contributors are publishing their price of Bitcoin every slot, so call it every 400 to 500 milliseconds. What PIF is doing is taking a smart aggregation of those inputs to compute the PIF price. So I guess two points related to quality control. One is because the network is so robust um, that there are so many inputs, any significant outlier would, would get weeded out of that algorithm. Number two is because every data contributor is publishing their own data directly on chain in a very kind of transparent way, there is a little bit of a reputational risk with respect to the data that they're providing. And then the third piece is there is, you know, we can get into this a little bit more with respect to kind of the, the staking and flashing mechanisms on PIP, but there is a reward model for providing good data and a slashing model for providing quote unquote bad data. So on the second, on the second part around re- reputational risk, but do you know who the vendor actually is that's providing the data? Because I know, like, for example, a lot of market makers will provide data through Pith. Do I know that, for example, like, I think Hudson River Trading, as an example, is a mm-hmm. Pith partner. Do yeah. I know that it's HRT specifically that's providing that price? Or do I just see an address that's the one providing the price? Yeah, good question. So you would not see the individual name associated with the price. Okay. When you go on Pith, and I would encourage all the listeners, pith.network, and you could go to the price feeds to really easily visualize this. The price you'll see is, again, that aggregate Pith price. Now, you might want to know, okay, here's this price. How many contributors make up this price? What are the variants in those contributors? And for every price, you can see all of the contributors by an anonymized public key. So you don't necessarily know exactly who it is, but it is a static public key contributing that price. So you could see for Bitcoin, there are 40 keys publishing a price every slot. Um, but again, the PIP price, the one that's used as an aggregate. And so you you mentioned kind of incentive mechanisms for providing price and and potentially, I think you, you use the word slashes if you provide low quality data. So can you kind of walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the, the white paper definitely outlines this in the most detail. One thing I'd also note, which I just think is a really interesting concept, is this idea of what is the right price? <laughs> you know, like you mentioned HRT, so I'll use them as an example. If you were to ask Jump, you know, what's the price of Apple right now? And we said it's 100. And then you asked HRT and they said it's 105. And then you asked, you know, an, you know, IEX, which is another contributor to PIF, and they said 103, who's right, right? There is no like right answer to that question. So it was a complicated kind of problem to discuss through and work through the PIF community to try to solve for. But essentially, the model is such that um, a quality price or a good price is indicative of how close the price that you're publishing on chain reflects the aggregate price of the next slot. And so there's a really, and then there's also metrics around uptime. And, you know, one thing we haven't spoken about yet is PIF also has confidence intervals, which allows for this bandwidth of error or kind of an uncertainty around each price. And that helps kind of help the network evaluate pricing in a little bit more of a robust way. And then as far as slashing goes, the slashing mechanism is essentially based on this kind of really cool insurance model that Pith has built out. 
And so what this states is for data, uh, data consumers, so the people that are actually using PIF, have an option to pay for that data. So one might ask, like, why would they pay for it if they don't have to? If I run a massive billion-dollar protocol on Solana that relies solely on PIF's price of Bitcoin, it may, benefit, it may be smart for me to have some level of insurance. You know, God forbid there's some sort of an Oracle failure. So you pay a small amount of premium for that feed. And then that fee pool could get redistributed to the data providers who are publishing that price. And then in the instance there is a failure, again, a really unlikely event, um, if there is a failure, you can then identify which of the contributors led to that. So it's a really interesting kind of ecosystem and model. And Josh, one thing I would note is a lot of what I just went through is ideas. It's not actually in full function yet on chain. Um, mm -hmm. That's kind of like the proposal put forth by the network as outlined in the white paper and kind of a, a really interesting thought experiment that the community is going through. And how do you, I guess if you have enough data providers, you're really able to solve the issue of what if you had a few bad actors that collude? Because for example, with, with the number of tokens that have multi-sig wallets, right? And, you know, for example, for anyone listening who doesn't, doesn't know what I'm, what I'm saying. So certain token treasuries have what's called multi-sig wallets, which are basically multiple people have to sign to enable the treasury of the token to make a transaction. Some of those tokens have issues though, where only, for example, three of the 12 signers need to sign for a transaction to happen. So theoretically, three people could kind of collude and pull all the money out of a token and it's a huge issue. But I guess theoretically, you could have a problem as well if you didn't have enough data vendors where theoretically like two or three data vendors could collude, change the reference price and cause mass liquidations. Like we saw, for example, you know, on BitMEX, BitMEX's you know, reference price used to include, I think, maybe it was ItBit um, mm. or Bitstamp or one of the other exchanges and people would mess with the price on one of those exchanges and cause, you know, cascading liquidations on, on, on BitMEX. So has that ever been a consideration of like, or has that been a problem for any Oracle yet of, of like data vendors colluding and messing with price and, and causing issues on chain? It's absolutely a risk for the Oracle space. The way Pith has addressed this risk, which I think is, is kind of the right way to do it, two things. The robustness of the network make that very difficult to happen in practice, right? So again, because there are 75 data providers, it would take a significant amount of collusion to, me, to move the entire average. And you can get into more of the details and specifics around that Pith kind of sophisticated weighted algorithm that would kind of understand and recognize that these are off market prices. The second is the incentive model. There really is, is, the goal is to provide good data. And if you were to provide bad data, that would be recognized by the community and therefore, you know, would not be been in your own interest to could, do so. Could, if somebody was a data provider that did provide bad data, could they be kicked off the network? That would come down to kind of a community governance vote. Yep. Yeah, again, that has not been an issue that we've experienced thus far. These, Any, these are, I guess, theoretical questions. Totally, right? totally. And, and uh, you know, we have absolutely seen certain data providers whose, you know, node goes down or they accidentally leave out a decimal point. And, you know, we've been, it's been good to see that PIP has handled those in a really robust and reliable way. And, and yeah, the other point I would just mention is we went through before that each individual contributor is anonymized by a public key. 
However, what's been really exciting with Pith is all of those 75 data contributors I mentioned have publicly announced and you know, are listed on Pitt's website as partners and contributors to the network. These are really, you know, highly credible institutions, leading trading firms like Jump, you mentioned HRT, Jane Street, Two Sigma, Virtu, DRW, Susquehanna, you know, I don't want to list all of them. Exchanges, crypto companies, all of them have big reputations to lean on. If they were to do what you were saying, which is some sort of a collusion mechanism or, you know, publish a bad price such that they can write a protocol that monetizes that. It's it's I would be pretty confident that the the community, right, the smart yes, users yes, on yes. chain would be able to back into who did that. And so I don't think that's a risk most of these types of institutions would be willing to take. And and that's also part of why Pip's design as a publisher network, meaning each contributor owns their own data, is critically important to kind of the architecture of Pip especially as you compare it to other oracles. And so I think that leads well into my next question, which is sure. what are the incentives to become a, a PIF data provider? Like how have you attracted your Akunas and your HRTs and your CTCs and all these guys to participate in the network? Because like, you know, these guys are making a lot of money trading. Yeah. Well, I also provide a price through PIF. Yeah, yeah, it's a... Uh, it it's a, it's a really good question. It's been really exciting to see, you know, Jump is a fierce competitor, as you know, with many of these trading firms in traditional markets. A lot of the exchanges and crypto companies publishing to PIP also compete with each other for market share. And it's, you know, it was like only in crypto, right? Would you see like this alignment? And so to answer your question, I think one is what unites this community of publishers is this fundamental belief in the growth of DeFi and Web3 and this need to build the first class tooling that ultimately will power that network. And that might all sound like a bit philosophical, but I really think it's true, right? It's this idea that let's build the arena and like the rails that we're going to ultimately play in. And I think that's a common alignment for a lot of these types of institutions and, you know, rising tide lifts all boats, you know, use your own own analogy. But I do think that's very relevant when you think about how early we are and kind of building out core infrastructure for this ecosystem. And then if I may, the second point I would, you know, I think is worth mentioning that aligns this, this group are, of course, the commercial incentives and, and kind of this reward model that we talked about briefly in a similar way to how like an Airbnb created a marketplace for spare real estate capacity, PIF is creating a marketplace for data capacity on-chain in a decentralized way. And so, you know, you mentioned Acuna, like trading firms like Jump and Acuna and HRT and all these ones we've mentioned historically have always been charged and we pay a lot of money in market data fees to be able to earn anything in return for that data is a really powerful and I think disruptive model. And so why Solana? So Pith, you know, when it originally came out, I think you guys are now, or, or, or Pith has, you know, plans to move to other chains or already has, but why build on Solana first? Yeah, so Solana is the native chain for Pith. Um, it was a natural kind of starting point, particularly given the um, throughput, the low fees, and the, the transaction viability on Solana. When you think about Pith as this high fidelity, high frequency Oracle solution, those things were kind of non-starters, right? Like it has to be fast. 
it has to be reliable. Um, the fees and gas cannot be, you know, too extensive that data providers wouldn't be willing to publish. However, it was always the goal from the PIF team to be fully cross Do the data providers on PIF pay the gas fees? Yes. Okay. Because I know some of the other oracles on other chains have had to, like, I believe Chainlink, for example, has to pay data providers because it's literally unreasonably expensive to actually provide data to Ethereum. Yeah. I mean, it's a big problem, right? Like if it's going to be too expensive and by like to publish data, you're going to stop, right? We mentioned the commercial model before, like you're right. None of these guys are doing it like for free and for fun. There has to be, it has to make sense. And, you know, even if it's a very little amount of work to operate a node and publish on chain, it's still some work. And so there needs to be, you know, reasonable kind of return mechanism for that. Certainly, I'm sure the PIF Association has, you know, helped with some of the fees for data providers up front as things have gotten rolling. But ultimately, those will be covered. And what I wanted to also mention, though, the the mission behind PIF and the team who built it originally, like, was always to be cross-chain, right? It was never intended to be exclusive towards Solana. And so PIF is now, there's a new chain called PIFnet, which is solely intended for PIF processing that is connected to Wormhole, which allows PIF to be fully cross-chain. And so, you know, BNB is now integrated with PIF, um, Ethereum, Avalanche, Polygon, many others will be announcing over the coming coming weeks as well. Um, and we're really excited about that. You know, when you think about like what's next for PIF, like this is a huge kind of priority for the team. Um, because it allows more projects, more developers, more builders to have access to PIPS data. And that was always the goal. So I think we talked about why would somebody provide data to PIF? But yep. I think the better question is now, why would somebody consume data from PIF? And I think it's very clear. It's very high quality data. It's very, you know, it's 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 clearly an incredibly good and high quality group of market participants that are providing the data and it's it's done in a very robust way. But how do you actually go about attracting all of these dApps, for example, on Ethereum to consume price feeds from Pith? Because a lot of times you don't even know who these people are that are building these projects. Like how do you actually do BD mm-hmm. uh, and and find these projects and 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 convince them to 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 build with with Pith data? Yeah, I've been really impressed as well with the Pith team and the community managers and business development team at PIF who are working really closely with a lot of these projects and ecosystems to, you know, what I've really observed is it's it's an education effort as well, which is to explain, you know, as we did, like, what is PIF? Why is the price data reliable? How should I be using PIF? Right? We mentioned PIF has, it's of course, a price, a financial data oracle, Confidence intervals are a really unique feature towards PIF and in, you know, educating protocols and consumers on how best to use that feature is important. So yeah, it's a good question. We've seen a lot, a lot of exciting, like organic growth as projects and protocols are using PIF and it's, you know, they've enjoyed the experience of doing so. It's been robust. It's been reliable. All of these things, I think, you know, proof is in the pudding, right? Like I think the performance has to be there. I think the way PIF has adapted and grown through a changing market environment. You know, it's gone through a lot of interesting events, including super volatile price action where PIF has held up really well. I think every time one of those happens, we see users from other oracles migrate towards PIF. Um, these are, this is data-based, right? You look at an event like a Luna crash or anything of that nature, you can very easily compare how oracles 
stacked up against one another. And, you know, just using the Luna example, like super volatile, really crazy. Pith was very robust. The confidence intervals adapted towards what was happening in the market. So it showed a really wide confidence because you were getting prices all over the place. An Oracle like Chainlink, unfortunately, had to activate their circuit breaker because the price of Luna went so far below it um, that they shut off pricing. And a lot of protocols were impacted by that. So, so how does that impact a protocol? Like depends, depends what it is, right? But like if you're depending on an Oracle for a price and it's <laughs> the price isn't there or the Oracle is shut off, like there's going to be liquidations or, you know, incorrect settlements could be all, all sorts of things. And, you know, it's uh, it, it shows like the responsibility actually for an Oracle and how important it is to use something that's like robust and reliable because there is a lot like riding on it. Um, and that goes back to like this infrastructure component. It's not always like the, the the sexiest kind of angle of the marketplace, but it's super exciting or super important. Um, it was interesting last week, an article, I believe it was Fortune came out, but it it highlighted this, which was that like oracles are kind of one of these things in the ecosystem most people don't talk about until something goes wrong. <laughs> so I was thinking of like, you know, it's almost like an offensive lineman, right? You know, they don't get all the glory, but it's pretty important for the team. Yeah, so I think that's actually a really re relevant and related point, which is that people, which I think is ridiculous, got yeah. mad at oracles because of what happened with mango markets, which yeah. is yeah. totally, totally in my mind unrelated. But can you please talk about that and the response? And and well, I, I presume that it is, or I, I'm very confident that it is a misguided response to blame the oracle for the fact that somebody messed with the underlying price. Um, but but I don't know if you have any comments on that. No, listen, our, our, our thoughts are with the mango community, like exploits suck and hacks are never kind of a good thing. Um, I, I, yeah, it's a quick response because you kind of said it already. This had nothing to do with Oracle's. Mango's not using Pith's price. So this was just kind of a, a, a miseducation effort that I think was quickly corrected. The Pith team commented on this and the Mango team also posted after the fact to just clarify that this was not an Oracle failure at all. So yeah, it is though. It is a good highlight of like things go wrong. Things are a little bit crazy and scary for a time and oracles often get kind of the, the brunt of the blame, but it's important to dig in to really understand like what actually happened um, and, you know, go from there. But yeah, as far as Mango goes, like Pith was not at all responsible. There was not nothing for us to do there. So we talked a lot about crypto pricing data, uh, but I know Pith already provides data uh, and pricing on, uh, I believe, uh, equities, um, correct me if I'm wrong, also potentially commodities and, and other asset classes. So can you kind of talk about what Pith provides today, mm -hmm. but also the vision yeah. of what Pith will provide in the future? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So Pith today supports about 100 symbols. Um, it includes equities, FX, metals, and of course, crypto. Um, the majority of the users of Pith, so the people actually consuming that data, are of course focused on the crypto data. But I think it's a really exciting and powerful proof of concept that Pith can support equities data. And that's in part because the data providers actually own that data and data licensing for equities and other asset classes is you know, a big issue to, to work through. Um, so the fact that there's first party ownership is critically important towards making that possible. Pith, there's nothing stopping Pith from supporting far more data, right? It's a bit of a scalability question, a resourcing question, and a demand question, right? So as more protocols and projects are built on chain that want access to other data sets, 
I think that's definitely part of what's exciting on Pitt's roadmap is scalability, right? So more so what symbols. actually goes yep. into adding support for another token, another ad, like let's just take another crypto, right? So I think you support yep. about 50 tokens or correct yep. me if I'm wrong. What like what what is the actual effort that goes into supporting 51 or 52 or 52? Yeah. So adding a new symbol within an existing asset class is a relatively light lift for the team because all of those kind of fields and um, credentials are already there. Adding an entirely new asset class to Pith is a bit more work that requires resourcing, just given kind of the field that a new asset class may require. But your example on crypto is super practical. This happens like literally on a weekly basis, especially now as Pith is going cross-chain. You know, you're getting projects on, from all sorts of ecosystems that want their token listed on Pith or projects that need other tokens listed on Pith. And you know, we're working, the, the Pith team is working through a more formal kind of governance structure for how that will look. But ultimately, it is a bit of a community vote to say, you know, we want this token on. Is there enough demand? And then I'd say the second piece is ensuring that there's enough data providers that can provide quality data for that price. So if someone were to want a token that's like a super tail end type token that we were like, we look at the community of data providers and only three of them are willing to publish for, or only three of them can publish for. That wouldn't meet PIP standards, right? There's usually like a min publisher amount of, you know, call it 10 to ensure that what we talked about before, there's enough robustness. So ensuring demand, resourcing, and enough kind of liquidity to, to support that is, is how, how it typically works. So digital assets and blockchains are 24-7, but, but equities uh, trade uh, with with limited hours during the day. So, what happens when when the market's closed on you know when you're streaming something like Apple price? Are you showing the last closed price? Mm -hmm. Are you streaming after hours quotes? How does that actually work? Yeah, so it would show an unknown price. So Pith is just kind of um, supported through the market hours for those types of asset class. I think what we've begun to see a lot of is or, or asks and, and hearing about are twenty four seven markets, right? Yep. And so something like Pip, I think, could play a critical piece of that as you think about like tokenization of equities or, or something of that nature. It could be really exciting um, as Pip grows. And what about like non non financial related data? Like what do you what do you think are and maybe it's not Pip, maybe it's other yeah. oracles. I know if Pip is primarily focused on financial at least today. What do you think are some of the most like exciting and practical real world examples of data that 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 should come to the chain soon that that has usage like you gave an example of of, of betting on a Knicks game which i think is, yeah. is obviously an interesting and a practical and a, an interesting one and it practically makes sense but i'm curious as to like what do you think we're going to see the most actual usage of in the next 12 24 months kind of you know shorter term yeah so Pith's core mission is really on the financial data space. I think there's so much wood to cut there. And like the market is massive when you think about kind of financial market structure, how many asset classes. So that I think will remain Pith's kind of core focus and how it was designed. You know, I'm really excited to see Pith begin to scale into other asset classes. You know, I mentioned I come from a treasuries background, like fixed income could have a really cool place on chain or credit derivative, you know, all sorts of types of asset classes. Thinking about non-financial data, I do think sports data is really exciting. I don't think Pith is as focused on this space yet, but it's certainly doable or possible. 
other oracles, you've seen support things like weather data, things like that, which I think is really exciting and, and really important as kind of the broader Web3 ecosystem grows. I don't think that'll be Pith's core focus. And then, yeah, I, I don't know. I think NFTs have some interesting data sets that could be applicable, and that probably falls within scope for something like Pith. Like, like, but, a, like a reference price on an NFT or something? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. How, how do you think about that? Like, how do you, how do you calculate? Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an investor. I have a portfolio of NFTs. How do I mark to market my portfolio? Data. <laughs> yeah. I know, but what, no, what, it's a good what question. is like what is data? What is yeah. the price of Bitcoin? Like, you know, maybe, maybe within a few basis points, there's 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 an argument. But with with an NFT, how do you, you know, these are yeah. really illiquid markets. They trade at very large differences in price. Sometimes an NFT will, based off of its rarity or how much somebody wants it, could trade at. You know, you could have one trade at one ETH, another one trade right. at six ETH, and the next one trade at one ETH again, right? So, right. Yeah, you, it's almost like PIP is a second derivative then, if you think about it that way, which is to say, like, once there are sufficient kind of exchanges and marketplaces for NFTs, then PIP can begin to capture what that, like, real data and value looks like. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good thought experiment, though. I, I'm not, I don't know if I have a great answer for you yet. Yeah, I mean, like we we think about it too, because yeah. you have like the like everyone talks about the floor price, which is like you know the lowest listing price or like the last sold price, or you can create an average. But it's a it's a really interesting question because I'm always curious when you know funds that have outside capital have NFTs on their on their yeah, balance they, sheet, right? At, well, how accurately they're actually reflecting the real <laughs> value of those NFTs because you you know you might have you know, maybe the price with you could sell one of them at one ETH, but if you try to sell fifty of them. They're not selling at one ETH, but I guess that's a problem with any asset that's, that's relatively liquid as well. So right, right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how oracles can play a role in that kind of broader ecosystem and discussion. So let's kind of move yeah. away from Pith now and let's talk broader digital asset markets. So you're on you're on the fundamental value podcast, which means you're gonna be asked the question of fundamentals. So what what are fundamentals for crypto? How do you how do you think about and how do you define fundamentals for a token? Yeah, I mean, I think what's been one of the silver linings of like the the bear market and crypto winter is a return to the focus on utility. And I don't want I'll, I'll put in quotes fundamentals because I know that's the question. But I think the way you know we at Jump at least think really about fundamentals is users, right? Users and developer interest is like a huge. I think benchmark for how to evaluate crypto projects, crypto ecosystems. And, you know, there's probably like a function around users, like users plus utility or something of that nature. But I really think it's when you look at like what's exciting about the Solana ecosystem, and I'm speaking on behalf of myself here, like what I think is so exciting is these they host these hackathons and the amount of developer interest and engagement on that ecosystem is really exciting. And that's measurable, right? That is measurable. Put token price aside. Um, but you can kind of weight that with utility, meaning kind of what like are they actually doing <laughs> and, and come up with a bit more of like a fundamental analysis. It's not a perfect answer. I guess I'm sure you've heard a wide range of answers. And I love when you ask this question on your podcast, but that's kind of how I think about it. And so, you know, my next question, I've been asking this to yeah. everyone as well. I, I really like it. Yeah. You know, fast, fast forward 24 months from now. How many of the top 100 cryptocurrencies by market cap will still be in the top 100? 25%. Wow. 25? What's, What's your... going to be in it? What's going to remain in it? 
don't you don't know. know you, mean, you don't need to give a me a question. Yeah. Names, but like what yeah. types of assets, what types of sectors, like what do you think will define something remaining within that top 100? I think like as certain segments grow, so whether that's like DeFi or gaming or metaverse, like you see this natural like turnover within the projects and protocols, like one's learning from each other. It reminds me of kind of like internet, you know, momentum in the 90s, whereby like early projects that have the right ideas, but maybe not the right functionality, you know, like think of like a pets.com, like it was spot on with what it was trying to do. It just didn't have the execution or like the timing necessary to execute it in the way that it is done now, right? I think you'll see a lot of that with crypto projects or some of these like turnovers. I think there's will be a, an interesting layer one debate between, you know, that probably variance in around like the top 10, I think. I don't know how much, you know, we certainly at Jump believe in like a multi-chain ecosystem and we're very focused on interoperability, but I, you know, I, I don't think there'll be hundreds. Um, so you get kind of a natural um, change over there. But yeah, it's a good question. I don't, you know, we'll see. And how do you think about building moats in this space? How mm. does a token build a moat? I think Pith has done a very interesting job with the quality of the market participants that are participating and providing data and pricing to Pith. But but we can move outside of the Oracle kind of discussion. How do you think, like, how does a DEX build a moat, for example, right? Like, how, like in, in a market where switching costs are minimal because you can connect a MetaMask wallet and then just trade on one platform versus another one. How do you how do you think projects build moats in this space? Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a um, I don't know an esoteric answer, but I do think like the power of community, which is hard to value, particularly in the fundamentals way, um, is is important. Like I do, we do see that. I think pretty. You know, people gravitate towards communities of builders and developers that they think that they can work with and off of. Um, and so it's hard to put an exact valuation on that. Again, I go back to like the the developer interest and user base for these projects is certainly one way to build a moat, but it's not easy. It's certainly not easy. We're really proud of kind of how the way Pith has built a moat just based on the the users who have, you know, been very public and open about their participation on Pith and you know, creating quality products, right? Like we're in a bear market now. So like having utility and actual functional value when you can't just lean on the price of your token is, you know, hugely important. And so it's like, again, one of these silver linings of a lot of the projects that didn't have moats you've seen disappear or fold away, right? Whereas the ones that clearly have value, utility and function continue to build, continue to do really exciting things even in the last, you know, 16 months. And so you mentioned one of the pieces of fundamentals and what you guys look for at Jump Crypto is usage of applications. So where have you seen the most real usage of anything in crypto? Do you think anything has achieved some some level of mainstream adoption yet? And and if 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 so, what? And if not, what do you think the first things that that will achieve mainstream mainstream adoption? What will those things be? Yeah, I mean, we hear this question, you know, you and I both, right, like go through the conference circuit and talk to a lot of institutions and, you know, the uh, real world use cases is, I think, always the one of the number one kind of criticisms or points. I would I would note one thing, like it's still so early and I know people are frustrated of hearing that. But when you think about like the development of this technology, sub 10 years, like is still really early. 
I think the groundwork is being laid. Um, I think when you think about what's happening in the DeFi space and more and more institutions getting into crypto in different kind of ways, I think a lot of the traditional infrastructure for finance will move on chain. And I think you're beginning to see some experimentation there. Um, I think the broad NFT space, you know, you're already beginning to see a lot of exciting use cases there, like well beyond JPEGs, um, whether that's related to contracts or entertainment. Um, I think that space is really excited. And I don't know, something else we see a lot of is like this DAO governance, you know, Jump Crypto has quite a voice in some of these governance votes. And I just think the way that um, organizations can, you know, work together as a community and cooperate and, and create outcomes through DAOs and things of that nature, you're beginning to see a lot of that in like really impactful ways. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think there's already a lot of use cases that are being built and, and are being used. I, again, I, I really like the argument too, like you'll know crypto has hit like a bit of a mainstream adoption when people are using it who don't realize they're using it. Right. So they're doing things on chain, whether it's payments or some sort of contractual obligation. And they're like, oh, that was on the blockchain. You know, I think that'll be like, well, a I think, really I think a good moment. example of that, of that recently, I, I transparently have not done diligence on this, but I don't know if you saw the Reddit Polygon news about the number of people that have actually interacted with NFTs from Reddit. I, I, I think I saw this headline, but yeah, I saw the headline. I haven't done yeah, the yet, I didn't but, do the diligence on that either. Um, According to this is from TechCrunch, or let's take the decrypt story. Yeah. Reddit users created three million crypto wallets to scoop up Polygon NFTs. So I haven't read, I haven't read into it too much, but that that's it's a big number. We have we yeah. don't hear those kinds of numbers in crypto all that often. True. Yeah, it's exciting. That, that's a good one. So, what in crypto has you most excited at right now? Um, it could be a sector, it could be a company, it could be a project, it could be yeah. anything. Anything, yeah, anything really. Pith. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, we are excited about Pith, but I, I will also, this is a bit of a self-plug, but it's been a super exciting kind of month for Jump Crypto. We hosted um, XHack, which was a workshop hosted at a new workspace in Jump's office in Chicago called The Pit. And it has, I was there for the first week, but I've been kind of you know keeping up with what's going on there. And it's just a really exciting time for builders and developers who are you know, working in this community. And the pit has been this, you know, groundwork of infrastructure that allows developers and projects and protocols to come together, to learn from each other, to bounce ideas off, to hear presentations. And the level of engagement has been super exciting. And the quality and caliber of like people and engineers working there. So it's a bit of a self-plug for Jump Crypto and the team that's really focused on the pit. But I would definitely encourage everyone who's listening to to check it out that's wrapped up this week but there'll be other events there and you know just to see it's like you know we go to these conferences but to see like more of that work in action like this was not about you know parties and good food this was like you go down there and there's presentations and whiteboarding and developers like coding all hours of the day and it was just really exciting to see so you know if i was at all a little bit bearish about crypto markets like go to the pit hear from some of these people building and you know understand 5% of what they're saying, that 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 makes me excited. <laughs> so my final question is, what is yeah. your hottest or most controversial take right now? Does it have to be about crypto? <laughs> Not really. I, that, I, I, didn't, I didn't specify. If you want to put out a 
Mm-hmm. Um, about crypto, ideally, but you can give both. No, 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 I was, yeah, we'll go crypto. So I don't know how hot or exciting this take is, but I, actually I'll give two. One's a little bit more boring. I do think um, institutional adoption of crypto is happening a lot faster than people realize. I think the common like note on that is regulatory barriers. And don't get me wrong, those absolutely exist. And I'm sure you've heard a lot about that on your podcast, just respect to like, you know, what's holding up institutions. But given kind of- We we do a lot of due diligence questionnaires. So we're we're using our time. Yeah, just given Jump's position and particularly my focus with Pith as kind of this bridge between like DeFi and TradFi, it's been really encouraging and exciting to see like what some of the institutions are doing in the space. And even just a year ago, like a lot of the doing was more talking. And I think we're now beginning to see a lot more action. That's probably not that hot of a take, but I think it is kind of interesting. I think Elon might turn Twitter into like a crypto company. That could be like one of our first cool, like that's a hot take real crypto. Yeah, I think that might be part of his motive. We'll see. And um, maybe uh, who bought Parler? Was it Kanye? Maybe Kanye, Kanye. will turn Parler into a I hope he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, Dorsey is always kind of, I think, super involved in that space. And we saw like SBF put out a thread on it. I, I just think there's there could be some more going on there besides just like Social media, maybe there's like a decentralized. Right, you heard it here first. If 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 Twitter becomes a crypto company and releases the <laughs> the the I don't know tweet tokens. Um, yeah. thank you. So <laughs> yeah. uh, thank you so much. This was awesome. I, you, I learned a lot. I um I've you've already gotten me excited about Pith Pith before, but I'm glad you got to share that enthusiasm excitement with with listeners as well. Where can where can people find you? Where can they find? Obviously, you work at Jump. You're just a contributor to Pith. Yep. Where can they find Jump? And where can people find out more about Pith that want to, one, contribute to Pith, but also, two, if they want to ingest data from Pith? Yeah, absolutely. So pith.network, P-Y-T-H.network is the website. And, you know, Pith is really, like, really very much being built in a transparent and open way. So you can follow along there, the blog, all the social um, channels for updates. And I would say, yeah, to... To the listeners, you know, if you have data <laughs> that you think is worth contributing or um, interesting to contribute on chain, we can talk about that. And check out pith.network on the price feeds. If there's data that's interesting there, we can also go through that. Uh, my name is Stephen Kaminsky. You can find me on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way. I've, uh, I keep my profile quieter on Twitter uh, compared to everyone else. But um, yeah, Josh, thanks so much for having me and really appreciate all the amazing work that the tie is doing. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. All right, guys.